This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the final portion of Chapter 6 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. That's Section 6.3 in the text on the Riemann Curvature Tensor, beginning on page 183. This section starts out with a little explanation of the fact that after Einstein finished developing special relativity in about 1905, he was very intrigued by what he called a deficiency in classical mechanics. And that had to do with the inertial mass of an object, that is, the mass of an object that determines how strongly that object resists accelerations and therefore appears in equations like Newton's second law, F equals ma, and the gravitational mass, which is the mass of an object that determines how strongly that mass responds to a gravitational field. That mass appears in equations such as Newton's law of gravity, F equals g m1 m2 over r squared. And in classical mechanics, there's no explanation of why resistance to acceleration and interaction with the gravitational field should be related at all, much less have the exact same value. And as it says at the bottom of page 183, it was Einstein's scientific instincts which said if he extended his theory of special relativity to the case of accelerating objects, that is, objects that were not in uniform motion with respect to one another, he could resolve this deficiency, and he called the theory that contained that resolution general relativity to differentiate it from the special relativity which dealt only with non-accelerating reference frames. On the top of page 184, there's a description of one of Einstein's Gedanken experiments, that is, one of his mental exercises that he often used to guide his thinking on various subjects. In this one, he imagined a group of objects with mass somewhere far away, out in space, if you will, far away from any other mass. And he imagined two observers looking at those masses. One observer is in a reference frame that he called the K reference frame, and it's inertial, that is, not accelerating with respect to the rocks. The other observer is in an accelerating reference frame that Einstein called the K-prime system, and that system is in uniform acceleration with respect to the first. So then Einstein asked himself, what would these two observers see? Clearly, in the non-accelerating K system, the rocks just sit there. But an observer in the K-prime system sees the rocks uniformly accelerating. Because remember, this system is uniformly accelerating, and the observer in the system therefore sees the rocks as accelerating in the opposite direction from the direction that the K-prime system is accelerating. And if you see a bunch of independent masses all accelerating in the same direction at the same rate, you are perfectly justified in concluding that there may be an external gravitational field that is causing those rocks to accelerate. And Einstein's brilliant insight was to realize that both of these are perfectly valid explanations for the behavior of the objects, and he called the inability to distinguish between the effects of acceleration and being in a gravitational field the principle of equivalence, meaning that someone uniformly accelerating with respect to the object is going to measure the same behavior as someone stationary with respect to the object if there's a gravitational field pulling on those objects. But it was the next step that Einstein took that really showed him the way forward for general relativity. And in that step, he overlaid the axes of the two systems, the K and the K prime system, but he allowed the K-prime system to rotate about the Z-prime axis. Now remember, rotation is a form of acceleration, so K-prime is now not a translationally accelerating system, but instead a centripetally accelerated system. Once again, Einstein asked himself what observers in each of those systems would measure. 
Imagine, for example, that there are some objects at rest in the K prime system, which means they're rotating with respect to the K system. An observer at rest relative to the K system sees those objects as moving, and the farther those objects are from the axis of rotation, the faster they're moving. But of course, Einstein realized from his work in special relativity that the speed of an object has important consequences for what observers measure. Specifically, length contraction, time dilation, and the other effects of special relativity would apply to these objects. Well, from the earlier part of his thought experiment, Einstein had said principle of equivalence applies, which means the accelerated system and a system at rest in a gravitational field must behave the same way. Therefore, if that rotating system can produce length contraction and time dilation, so too must gravity. And he put it very succinctly by saying, the gravitational field influences and even determines the metrical laws of space-time. Well, if you track the concepts in chapters 4 and 5, you realize that the metrical laws, that is the structure of a coordinate space, are determined by the metric tensor and involve mathematical operations such as Christoffel symbols and covariant derivatives. So, of course, general relativity relies on tensor formulation of physical laws. Clearly, we can barely scratch the surface of general relativity in a little section like this, but at least I wanted to address the most important tensor in general relativity called the Riemann curvature tensor. Sometimes you'll see it called the Riemann Christoffel tensor. The reason this tensor is so important is because non-zero components in this tensor are a characteristic of a curved space. And as it says at the bottom of page 184 and the top of page 185, the vanishing of the Riemann tensor is both necessary and sufficient for a Euclidean or flat space. Now most texts use one of two ways to derive the Riemann curvature tensor, and the ways are related, but the terminology you're likely to see in each is somewhat different. One way to derive the Riemann curvature tensor is called parallel transport, and the other is the commutator of the covariant derivative. The parallel transport approach is quite straightforward. It involves moving a vector around a space while keeping its length and direction the same. As you may have seen earlier, that's easy to do in Cartesian flat space. You simply don't allow the Cartesian components of the vector to change, and it's automatically going to keep the same magnitude in the same direction. But of course, in curved space, things are a little more complicated. And to understand this, consider a two-dimensional curved space, like the idealized surface of the Earth. As it says in the middle of page 185, imagine a vector pointing north from the equator. So the example used there is maybe you're a bit north of Quito in Ecuador. If you're pointing north up the meridian toward the North Pole, and you now transport that vector toward the North Pole, all the while making sure it remains pointed along the meridian, look at what's going to happen. Now remember, as you move it, you must keep it horizontal, that is, in the local tangent plane to the point of the Earth you're on, and as you move up the meridian and over the North Pole and down the other side of the Earth, you're eventually going to arrive at the equator again. If you left from Ecuador, you're probably now in the middle of Indonesia. But look at the direction your vector is pointing. It's pointing due south. Because in keeping it horizontal and in keeping it along the meridian, when you went over the North Pole and down the other side, it went from pointing north to pointing south. But the issue for curved spaces really comes up when you consider a different trip between the same two points. So we're back in Quito, the vector is pointing north again, but now instead of going up the meridian and over the North Pole, you're going to move along the equator, all the while keeping the vector pointing along the local meridian, that is pointed due north at every point. 
As you go around the Earth, let's say you go halfway around, so you end up again in the middle of Indonesia, and this time that vector is pointing due north. Now in each case, you kept the vector pointing due north, and yet depending on the path you take to get from Ecuador to Indonesia, you may end up with a vector pointing south or a vector pointing north. There are other paths you could have taken which would have the vector pointing in a different direction. And that's the major concept here. You transport a vector between two locations using different paths. And when you arrive at your destination, if the vector is pointing in a different direction depending on which path you took, that's an indication that you're in a curved space. And one way to derive the Riemann curvature tensor is to do parallel transport along a tiny loop and to measure the amount of change in direction of that vector when you come back to the endpoint. Now at the bottom of page 185 another issue is raised which is if you hope to do operations such as adding vectors or comparing them just as we saw in chapter one the easiest way to add vectors is to move the base of one to the tip of the other. However, in a curved space, depending on which path you take, whichever vector is moving may be different when it arrives at the location of the other vector. So this idea of parallel transport, that is, keeping the vector, quote, pointed in the same direction, unquote, is very easy to do in flat space, but it's not so easy to do in curved space. So on the top of page 186, I talk about a more general definition for parallel transport being required. And that definition is given in the first full paragraph on page 186 in which it says parallel transport is defined in general as transport for which the covariant derivative is zero. Remember from chapter 5, the covariant derivative involves not only the usual partial derivative of components, but also another term which involves a Christoffel symbol accounting for the change in the basis vectors. Well, if you hold that covariant derivative to zero while transporting a vector around a small loop, that's one way to get the Riemann curvature tensor. The other way, and the way that's going to be explained in some detail here, is to use what's called the commutator of the covariant derivative of a vector. If you haven't run into commutators before, they're very straightforward. A commutator is simply the result of performing two operations, first in one order and then in the reverse order, and subtracting them. So just above the middle of page 186, you'll see in square brackets, AB, that's the notation for the commutator of operations AB. On the right side, you see AB minus BA. AB means first you perform operation A, then you perform operation B and get a result. If you subtract from that BA, that is the same two operations but performed in the reverse order, first B and then A, any differences there are the commutator. If the commutator is zero, the two operations commute. The sequence doesn't matter. And the way to get to the Riemann curvature tensor from this is to realize that in a flat space, the order of covariant differentiation doesn't make any difference at all. So you're always going to get a zero for the commutator of covariant derivatives in flat space. Another way to say that is, if you take the commutator of covariant derivatives and don't get zero, then you're not in a flat space. You have essentially measured the curvature of that space. You'll see the math behind this on the bottom of page 186 and on page 187. It starts out by taking the covariant derivative of a vector called v sub alpha. Notice that's a covariant vector, and we're taking the covariant derivative with respect to x superscript beta. That's written as equation 621, which is just our definition of covariant differentiation from chapter 5. Notice that on the left side, the semicolon is used to represent the covariant derivative. The beta after the semicolon tells you which coordinate you're taking the covariant derivative with respect to. And on the right side of 621, the first term is just the partial derivative, and the second term involves the Christoffel symbol, and it is subtracted because we're dealing with the covariant components of the vector.
if you take that covariant derivative and call the result v sub alpha beta. Notice that now we have a rank 2 tensor because we've taken a derivative, and now you take another covariant derivative, this time with respect to x superscript gamma, you get equation 622. On the left side, the notation is of course v sub alpha beta, that's what we're taking the covariant derivative of. The semicolon gamma means we're taking a covariant derivative with respect to x super gamma. And on the right side, there's the partial derivative term, and now since it's a rank 2 tensor, we have two terms involving Christoffel symbols, both subtracted because this is a doubly covariant tensor. If you now take the result of 621 and plug it into 622, you get the equation at the bottom of page 186, this labeled equation 623. There you'll see there's a second partial derivative term and six additional terms involving Christoffel symbols. As it says on the top of page 187, the physical significance of that expression is very difficult to see, but I think it's a good idea to stop at this point and remind yourself what you're doing and how you got here. The idea is this. You know that a non-zero commutator of the covariant derivative means that curvature exists. So we're going to do two covariant derivatives, first in one order, then in the reverse order, and we're going to compare the results. We're essentially going to subtract one from the other and see if we get zero. Any non-zero terms remaining are going to be related to the curvature of the space, and in those non-zero terms, we're going to find the Riemann curvature tensor. So far, we've taken two covariant derivatives, first in the x superscript beta direction, and then in the x superscript gamma direction. We've got the results of that in equation 623. Now we're going to do covariant derivatives in the reverse order, first with respect to x superscript gamma, and then with respect to x superscript beta. Equation 624 on page 187 shows the result of the first of those covariant derivatives. Much like we just did, we're going to call this result v sub alpha gamma and take another covariant derivative, this time with respect to x superscript beta. That's shown as equation 625, and exactly as before, we then take the result of the first covariant derivative, plug it into the second, and we get, in this case, equation 626. Notice once again, the first term involves the second partial, and then six more terms involving Christoffel symbols. Now since you know that in flat space, the order of covariant differentiation should make no difference, you can simply compare equation 623 and equation 626 and look for differences. That's what's happening on the bottom of page 187 and the top of 188. Starting with the first term, you can see there near the bottom of page 187, that's the one involving the second partial derivative of v sub alpha with respect to x superscript gamma and x superscript beta. Those two first terms from equation 626 and 623 are identical because these are normal partial derivatives for which the sequence doesn't matter. So those two will cancel when we form the commutator. But if you look at the second terms, and these are shown in the last equation on page 187, you'll notice that these are not identical. Specifically, the Christoffel symbol on the left side is alpha beta, on the right side it's alpha gamma, and the coordinate with respect to which we're taking the partial derivatives is x sub gamma on the left and x sub beta on the right. So these are not, in general, the same. Therefore, we cannot cancel them in the general case. So for the first two terms, we find the first terms do cancel, the second terms do not cancel. For the third term, instead of comparing the third term of 623 with the third term of 626, as it says in the text on the very bottom of page 187, we're going to compare the third term of 623 with the fourth term of 626. When you do that, as you can see on the top of page 188, these terms are equal. 
At first glance, they may not look equal, but you have to remember that both the sigma and the tau indices are dummies. That is, they appear both in a superscript and in a subscript in the same term, and therefore what symbol you choose to use for those dummy indices is irrelevant, and these two terms are the same. So when you form the commutator, they will subtract to zero. Now we look at the fourth term of 623 and the third term of 626. That's in the next line, and for the same reason you find those are also equal. But when you get to the fifth terms, now you find that they are not equal. The first Christoffel symbol on the left is alpha gamma. On the right side of the equation, it's alpha beta. And the second on the left is tau beta. And the second on the right is tau gamma. So, like the second term, those are not, in general, equal. Looking at the six terms on the next line, you find that they are equal. In order to see that, you have to remember that the two lower indices for Christoffel symbols are interchangeable. That is, Christoffel symbols are symmetric in their lower indices. So the Christoffel symbol on the left, which has beta gamma in the lower indices, and the one on the right, which has gamma beta in the lower indices, do in fact have the same value. The upper index is eta in both cases. The partial derivative is the same. And therefore, these terms are equal and will subtract to zero in the commutator. Finally, the seventh terms, exact same thing. So when you form the commutator of these covariant derivatives, you find that most of the terms do cancel, but the second and the fifth remain after you do the subtraction. I wrote those out in equation 627 in the middle of page 188, and when you pull out the v sub sigma, you're left with the four terms in parentheses that are in fact the Riemann curvature tensor. That's written as R superscript sigma, subscript alpha beta gamma in equation 628. Notice that the curvature tensor has two terms which involve partial derivatives of Christoffel symbols and two terms which involve products of Christoffel symbols. Why should partial derivatives of Christoffel symbols be involved? That's explained in the paragraph near the bottom of page 188, where it points out that in any space, at any given location, you can find a coordinate system for which the Christoffel symbols are zero. But if the space is not flat, the Christoffel symbols will be non-zero elsewhere, and therefore those partial derivatives will be non-zero. So in fact, when you're looking for curvature, you can't just look at Christoffel symbols, you have to look at how those Christoffel symbols are changing over space. All of this means that the necessary and sufficient condition for flat space is given in equation 629. The Riemann curvature tensor must vanish. R superscript sigma, subscript alpha beta gamma, must be zero. I think it's helpful to see an example of that, but before I get on to that, there are some other tensors and a scalar that are related to the Riemann curvature tensor that you're likely to run into if you do study general relativity. First of those is called the Ricci tensor, which you can get from the Riemann tensor, as it says on the bottom of page 188, by contracting along the sigma and beta indices. As you can see in equation 630, I've made beta equal to sigma. That now becomes a dummy index, which means you need to sum over it. So in four-dimensional space, you get the expression that you see in equation 630. As you can see on the top of page 189, you can also get something called the Ricci scalar by contracting the Ricci tensor. In order to do that, first you have to raise one of the indices and then set it equal to the other. So that's what I've done in equation 631. Notice the metric tensor G superscript alpha gamma is going to raise the alpha index from the Ricci tensor R sub alpha gamma. That alpha is raised and turned into a gamma. Now you've got R superscript gamma subscript gamma, which means that's a dummy index. You have to sum over that index as well, as shown in the right side of equation 631. 
The reason I showed you the Ricci tensor and the Ricci scalar is because I thought you might want to see the so-called Einstein tensor, which combines the metric with the Ricci tensor and the Ricci scalar, as shown in equation 632. See the Einstein tensor, which is usually written as G sub alpha gamma, and it's defined as the Ricci tensor, R sub alpha gamma, minus one-half times the Ricci scalar, R, times the metric tensor, G sub alpha gamma. The reason I wanted you to see the Einstein tensor is because that's what appears in the field equation for general relativity. The usual form of that is shown in equation 633, where you see g sub mu nu, that's the Einstein tensor, plus gamma times lowercase g sub mu nu. Now that gamma is not a Christoffel symbol, it's the so-called cosmological constant, as explained in the following paragraph. On the right side of the equation, there you see g, the gravitational constant, and t sub mu nu, which is another tensor. That tensor is called the energy-momentum tensor. It's this field equation which explains the first part of the famous concise summary of general relativity, which is given in quotes in the middle of page 189. Matter tells space-time how to curve, and space-time tells matter how to move. That telling space-time how to curve is what you get from equation 633. As I mentioned earlier, to really understand the Riemann tensor, it helps very much to see an example. And the rest of this section is just using a two-dimensional space that is the surface of a sphere. I've written the metric in the middle of page 189. It says ds squared is equal to a squared d theta squared plus a squared sine squared theta d phi squared. And from that, you can read off the components of the doubly covariant metric tensor pretty easily. g sub theta theta is a squared. g sub theta phi and g sub phi theta are both zero. And g sub phi phi is a squared sine squared theta. When you plug those into the equation for Christoffel symbols, you get eight different symbols, four of which are shown on the bottom of page 189 and four more on the top of page 190. There's a total of 48 terms there, but fortunately, most of them are zero. You know, for example, that anything with a multiplicative factor of g sub theta phi or g sub phi theta must be zero because they're both zero. You also know the only partial derivative of a component of the metric tensor that is non-zero is the partial of g sub phi phi with respect to theta. That's because g sub theta theta equals a squared, which is a constant, so the derivatives of that must vanish. And g sub phi phi only involves a, a constant, and the variable theta, so derivatives of that element with respect to phi must also be zero. So when you eliminate all the zero terms, you're left with the equations shown in the middle of page 190 for gamma superscript phi subscript theta phi, superscript phi subscript phi theta, and superscript theta subscript phi phi. If you have an early printing of the book, please note that on the first line of each of these three expressions, I should have included a factor of one-half, which has been included in the second line, but was inadvertently left out of the first line. So for the first Christoffel symbol, cotangent theta, the second cotangent theta, and the third minus sine theta, cosine theta, those are correct. The factor of one-half has been included in those. Once you have the Christoffel symbols, you can get the Riemann curvature tensor pretty easily, simply taking the partial derivatives and plugging in and multiplying. I first of all wrote out that tensor just repeating equation 628. And in the paragraph after that, there's a little reminder that in order to find the elements of the Riemann curvature tensor, you've got to allow each of the indices, that is sigma and alpha and beta and gamma, to represent both theta and phi, and you've got to allow the dummy index tau also to represent both theta and phi. And of course, since it's a dummy index, you have to sum over those terms. 
So even in our two-dimensional case, this turns out to give a fair number of terms. I got the first eight by setting sigma equal to theta, and then letting the other indices represent both theta and phi, and of course summing over the dummy index. The first two of those components are shown on the bottom of page 190. The next six are shown on the top of page 191. Once you insert the Christoffel symbols into those expressions, you find that only two elements of the Riemann curvature tensor survive. Those are written in the middle of page 191. And once I plugged in those partial derivatives, you see that for R superscript theta sub phi theta phi, you get sine squared theta. And for R superscript theta sub phi phi theta, you get minus sine squared theta. But there are more terms to look at. You get those by allowing sigma to equal phi, and you get eight more components of the Riemann curvature tensor. The first three are shown on the bottom of page 191. The next five are shown on the top of page 192. Once again, you have to insert the Christoffel symbols. You find the non-zero terms to be two of those. Then if you take the partial derivatives and plug in the symbols and make the products, you see that the two surviving terms are r superscript phi sub theta theta phi, which is minus one, and r superscript phi sub theta phi theta, which is equal to 1. The fact that we have found some elements of the curvature tensor that are non-zero means that we are in fact dealing with a curved or non-Euclidean space. If you want to get some practice with these, take a look at the problem set at the end of this chapter where you'll be able to find the Ricci tensor and the Ricci scalar for these, and if you need help with that, be sure to check out the online solutions.